Welcome to the New Books Network. China has ongoing regional conflicts with two portions of national territory, Muslim-dominated Xinjiang and Buddhist-oriented Tibet. What are the likely outcomes of these conflicts between the core Chinese territory and these peripheral regions? What are ethnic politics in China like more generally, and how do these relate to the historic origins of contemporary China? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Yan Sun, professor of political science at Queens College and the Graduate Center of CUNY. She is uh, author of the recent book, From Empire to Nation State, Ethnic Politics in China, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Yan Sun is also the author of two other books, Corruption and Market in Contemporary China, published by Cornell University Press, and The Chinese Reassessment of Socialism, published by Princeton, as well as many scholarly articles on China's ethnic politics, political corruption, China and Russia's post-socialist transformations, and corruption in China, India, and Russia. She's also written articles on China's ethnic politics in the New York Times. So thank you very much uh, for joining us today, Yansun. Thank you for inviting me. Great, great to have you. Finally, we've been talking about doing this for a long time, and finally (laughs) it's happening. So I'm very happy about that. So as I've just mentioned in the introduction, you know, you've written a book about ethnic politics in China that focuses basically on these peripheral uh, regions of Xinjiang and Tibet, which everybody who pays attention to international affairs at all is aware are sort of conflict points for the for the Chinese regime regime. And you show in the book that despite their separationist tendencies, they're not likely to escape Chinese control. And you argue that this has to do with the pattern of Chinese state building over the centuries. And I wonder if you could explain that to our listeners. I mean, how does this different? You you kind of compare it to two other empires, the Soviet Empire and the Ottoman. And I wonder if you could, you know, explain to people how these three cases of empires have developed and what the implications of that are for contemporary Chinese regional ethnic politics. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, historically, uh, what is now uh, the territory, territorial span of China was ruled by three tiers or in three tiers. Of course, the dynasties varied across centuries, uh, but mostly uh, when China was uh, united, that is, having both the frontier regions and the core regions when they were together. And they were ruled uh, in these three tiers. So first, uh, there was the central plains or the core of China now. And now it's mainly the Han regions, but historically basically a fusion of runs and runs of incorporation of frontier people into the proper uh, China. And this uh, central plains was ruled directly by the imperial court, which basically means registration for tax purposes and military recruit. So next year we have 
the so-called inner peripheral regions. They were geographically and culturally close to China, at least semi-agrarian. So they shared some values and they were indirectly ruled uh, and the dynasties, the emperors usually granted or conferred titles to local chieftains. So it nominally make them part of the imperial system. But they were taxed, uh, uh, you know, some uh, partially, and they were sometimes uh, uh, recruited for military purposes. And over time, they have been incorporated into the official bureaucracy, even though usually the local shiftings would serve those titles. And then finally, we have the outer peripheries, which um, I would call China's Eurasian frontiers. And we had four of them, and Tibet and Xinjiang would be two of them, Tibet uh, faces uh, West Asia, you know, Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and uh, uh, Xinjiang faces uh, right now, of course, historically also Central Asia and uh, Russia. And then we have um, Manchuria facing um, Mongolia and Russia, Siberia, and also, of course, Mongolia, uh, which of course, which actually included, used to include uh, outer Mongolia also, and outer Mongolia is directly bordered by uh, Russia. So of those four Eurasian frontiers, two of them actually conquered China, and therefore they became assimilated and also incorporated into China. Um, so they they are no longer a so-called problems in, in terms of incorporation and assimilation. But the other two, because they were more remote culturally, uh, religiously, and also geographically, that is Tibet and Xinjiang. So therefore, they have remained uh, restive for those purposes because culturally and politically, they had always been less uh, incorporated into the Chinese dynasty and now the Chinese political system. But overall, um, overall even during those minority dynasties, the minority dynasty always expanded China's territory. Chinese territory expanded by osmosis. So now that we, we talk about uh, aggression, aggressiveness, and so on and so forth, it's important to make the distinction that Russia expanded by outward expansion. And this would be one difference between the traditional Chinese empire and the Russian one. And the Chinese emperor overall still very contiguous, connected to your territories. Right, rounds of incorporation of frontier uh, borders, and usually, uh, it's always because of the frontier regions. Right, and nomadic groups traded on the agrarian regions for harvest for food. Uh, unlike Russia, uh, they uh, usually uh, their pattern was one of outward expansion. That's why their empire's historical was much more expansive. And therefore, historically, also in contemporary times, much harder to control and rein in and assimilate uh, for the central authorities. The same, uh, I would say, went for the Ottoman uh, empires all the way to uh, to Europe. Uh, that left a lot of autonomies right, locally, which means um, at the time of um, nationalism and war, uh, it was easier, much easier for the autonomous uh, communities to agitate for ethno-nationalism, nationhood, and statehood. Of course, that came along with a lot of bloodshed in in the case of the Ottoman uh, empires. In Russia's case, Russia uh, solved the problem 
um, by creating the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, 15 republics, granting each of them self-determination. This was a way to incorporate them. China did uh, some of the same thing, uh, right? They followed Soviet model of ethno-federalism and created so-called autonomous system. Uh, so historically, China had much uh, stronger tradition of local elite ties to central authorities. And China was, uh, I was historically quite good at using those so-called hegemonic strategies to, to maintain control over the frontier regions. So by by his hegemonic, first of all, we have those uh, uh, intermarriage strategies, right? Send princes and uh, to or bring in princes from outside, from frontier regions to intermarry. They became cousins and uncles, uh, uh, and that was one form of uh, uh, ties. Another tie was conferring in imperial titles to these local chieftains. Historically, China had soft power because it had a, a more functioning bureaucracy, uh, also a more advanced economy. So it was quite attraction to surrounding communities. So it was prestigious for them to be conferred those titles uh, as uh, it gave them more legitimacy as local rulers. Uh, another uh, practice of another hegemonic strategy for minority regions was called tribute and trade. So they had to make annual tri tri tribute trip, uh, sometimes annual, sometimes several years, depending on how far you are. Right. And in return, the imperial government actually gave them more, far more in tributes, in gifts. Right. That was also an honor. And trade, of course, was always necessary uh, between the frontier regions that needed food and, uh, and tea uh, and uh, the core regions that needed horses. Sometimes very ironic to, to fight the frontier regions. Right, Horses were advanced uh, forms of uh, transportation and the weapons back in those. So finally, education of local elites. In the Chinese classics, um, they were also invited to take the civil service exams uh, so that they would be educated in Chinese uh, Confucian values, Confucian language. And this also promoted stability and identity with the political, with the system. I would say uh, this uh, was also one difference between the Chinese Empire and the Russian and Ottoman Empire, because Chinese system, the uh, Chi uh, Chinese dynasty had a very strong centrally administered imperial exam systems. And once even the, the, the frontier minority elites and their children later on were required to actually uh, to be educated in those classics and sometimes take, take the exams in order to have to govern their local territories. That was a, a very effective method of in incorporation and also uh, identity enhancement with central uh, authorities. Uh, so I talk about right. the history. Yeah, those. Yeah, that's pretty much the history of it. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I, I mean, one of the things that struck me in reading the book was uh, this uh, notion of Terry Martin's that I had once read a long time ago, but forgot about, uh, mm -hmm. namely this mm -hmm. affirmative action empire in the Soviet Union, where empire, basically, yes. the, where basically there were these uh, different, you know, <laughs> portions mm -hmm. of the Soviet Union that, you know, usually were followed by the name Stan. Uh, and uh, they were sort of governed by titular nationalities or representatives of uh, so-called representatives of titular nationalities. And then those all sort of broke away yes. uh, as the Soviet Union dissolved. Yes. And 
despite the fact that China had followed the Soviet Union after the revolution in 1940, succeeds in 1949, um, you, you know, you basically are arguing that China didn't follow uh, the Soviet Union so much in that respect. So maybe you could just clarify that for those who are more familiar with what happened in the Soviet Union. Or uh, Yeah. Uh, so China uh, at first did embrace the Soviet concept of self-determination, you know, solidarity with the proletariat and give equality and liberation to all ethnic groups. Um, but then upon coming into power, uh, the CCP changed their mind and look at Chinese history and say, you know, these folks were closer to us and these frontiers had historical ties to us. So they were somewhat different from the Soviet Union. So therefore, they removed uh, that self-determination concept, uh, but they still follow the institutional format of titular uh, autonomies, that is demarcating these territories and naming them after the majority minority, the, the core minority of that region. Later on, of course, nowadays there are arguments that those titular uh, name, naming helped enhance their identities and exactly uh, the Soviet republics broke apart along those titular geographic alliance. Um, but uh, about the affirmative uh, action uh, empire, uh, so historically China had diverse indirect rule. Uh, what the Soviet type ethno-federalism did was to create, on the one hand, centralization, uniform, uniform, uh, have a uniform uh, political system across all those regions, um, institute as the Communist Party. The Communist Party had power of personnel and appointment. So that basically, and ideology, that basically exerted centralized or uniform control over all the regions. At the same time, at the state level, by state level, the party built an affirmative action empire that became the substance of this autonomy. So if you talk about what kind of autonomy they, they had, not political autonomy of making decisions, but the, but the substantive autonomy of having an affirmative action in every aspect so that they actually, in Soviet Union, those republics too, in China's frontier regions as well, those affirmative action programs created a crop of cadre, middle class, uh, elites, local elites, right? And, and double-edged sword, right? When it came to ethnic mobilization, and those elites became the voices of independence, they were educated, they had ethnic identity, they had resources, they knew how to use those resources. Uh, at the same time, before that, before breakdown of the Soviet Union, also in China now, those affirmative action programs help to, I would say, sort of build their support, right, the support base for the party, especially in the early days uh, when most ethnic masses were poor, impoverished, uh, and actually um, appreciated the so-called liberation uh, of the party. Very interesting. So, I mean, again, when I was reading your book, I mean, the last thing I was really expecting to read about was identity politics in China. <laughs> that was kind of a surprise. And, you know, I've only recently learned these uh, things that some of which you're now touching on about the place of affirmative action in China. And but you talk about, um, you know, there being a kind of tension between the party's universalism 
uh, and sort of invocation based basically, of course, of class struggle, uh, you know, vis-a-vis this more, I guess, recent uh, development, partially sponsored by the party uh, of a kind of identity politics and, and an ethnic politics. So I wonder if you could talk about you know, that issue, the sort of uh, tension between universalism and ethnic or identity politics and how that plays out in China. And how does this affirmative action system work? I mean, you've just described it to some extent, but uh, and it obviously plays a significant role in creating regional elites of certain kinds. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about this tension between these two ideals, if you like. Yeah, all empires, historic or contemporary, must rely on the interplay of universalism uh, and also some recognition to local identities in order to maintain um, some stability, right? in order to do uh, maintenance of empires, because empire uh, means rule over diverse groups and peoples and territories. You have, to univer- you have to use universalism to unify them, but also you have to acknowledge uh, identities uh, in order to give them some recognition and autonomy. So during the Mao years, after upon communi- uh, uh, the Communist Party came to power, um, and what helped them uh, with uh, minority groups, incorporation of minority groups, was the social class universalism. And the two regimes before, the Republican regimes before the Communist country, failed precisely for that reason that they had the strategy, the traditional strategy of uh, making coalition with the elites. But when those elites became very repressive and economically exploited, they lost the ethnic masses, not just local elites, but also Guomindang and the Republican regimes. So the Communist Party's social class solidarity appealed a lot to this uh, minority groups, and that served as the base to rally uh, and to incorporate this um, this um, frontier regions. In return, of course, they received this um, geographic autonomy and affirmative action in return as a, a sort of a, a material uh, evidence, you can say, uh, for the party's uh, uh, belligerent role of social class uh, solidarity with them. Um, but that also went uh, uh, very interestingly uh, during the Mao days. You know, it was okay to condemn Dalai Lama as the you know super bad uh, exploitative aristocracy. You could condemn those uh, those uh, high lamas, high paid lamas, and also mullahs and imams, right? as these people who usurp land and tax people heavily. Uh, um, but then the Cultural Revolution also went excessive in destroying religious institutions, uh, monasteries and temples, and, uh, and even ordinary people were quite uh, affected during the Cultural Revolution. So as a way to compensate for the radical excesses of the Cultural Revolution, by the way, ethnic schools were also closed and, uh, and prayers were not allowed. At first, they were left alone, but during the Cultural Revolution, things went extreme. So uh, after the uh, end of the Cultural Revolution, most days, the party tried to compensate by restoring religion, restoring, uh, rehabilitating all the ethnic uh, elites. 
and in only in two regions, the rest of regions, Tibet and Xinjiang, where the elites, all of them, rehabilitated, whether or not they staged military uh, rebellions, coups against the government, it did not matter. In other minority regions, this kind of elites were sent back to their home. But in Tibet and uh, Uyghurs, they recognized that, right, that, that how important they were. Uh, all of them were rehabilitated, given high ranks, their children were placed in you know, top schools, and materially, their losses properties were compensated for. So suddenly, uh, the masses or the ethnic masses in those regions became very confused. Uh, wasn't these people targeted as bad people before? But now they were good people, right? And weren't we supposed to be more secular? And now and these people were restored as uh, so, so respected. So that became the basis for new identity politics because before there was a uh, uh, inter-ethnic solidarity, but now it became intra-ethnic solidarity. And the differences between the Han group and the minority groups became heightened because the, the false problems of the excesses of the cultural revolution became blamed on Han people, Han government, rather as something that all of China, all of people in China uh, suffered. I would say that was the beginning of in instituted, a state instituted, uh, identity uh, politics, of course, followed by also um, increase, a lot of increase in all kinds of affirmative action programs to give substance to, to the identity politics. Uh, I would say the most uh, serious, the consequential of them was the so-called dual legal standards uh, in the early 80s, instituted in the early 80s. By the dual legal standards, Minority countries, uh, minority uh, regions basically enjoyed uh, a looser application of law, right? Um, so if their regions had conventions like blood for blood, if you kill me, I have to kill, you kill a member of my tribe, I have to kill a member of your tribe, it's fine. And uh, very often in some minority regions, the rapist was not at fault, but the raped was at fault because, you know, you provoked the problem. Uh, so those conventions were given recognition and um, would not be charged sometimes because uh, by the by dual legal standards, and the dual legal standards also created uh, a notice. Uh, uh, Chinese public criticized that for again indulging, indulging, um, not just identity but also uh, behaviors that do not always align with the prevailing legal system of the country. I see. Fascinating. So um, maybe you could talk about, you know, the ethnic composition of China. I mean, I think most of us who are not very knowledgeable about China think it's, you know, other than these two regions that we've been talking about, Xinjiang and Tibet, you know, that the rest of the population is sort of Han. But that's clearly not the case. So maybe you could just explain a little bit, you know, and where where these different groups are uh, distributed, you know, around the Chinese territory and how much that makes a difference yeah. in terms of yeah. their impact. Yeah, of course, historically, uh, I think 
Uh, nowhere, uh, I think uh, everywhere we did not have clear borders, but only frontiers demarcated mainly by natural geographic markers like rivers and mountains and valleys, right? And the border uh, and the frontiers were really porous and uh, fluid, and people uh, peoples uh, came and go, right? Intermarried across borders and traded across borders. Uh, so when the Communist, came, uh, Communist Party came in the 1950s, they staged a huge, massive uh, campaign to classify all the groups. So officially now there are 55 minority groups, but if you allow them to self-identify, they did try to get people to self-identify, and that came to hundreds and hundreds of groups. So finally they had to classify by language, narrow that down to 55 groups. Again, uh, four Eurasian frontier groups, all right, the Mongols, Manchus, uh, Uyghurs, and Tibetans among the top 10, right? Uyghurs and Manchus are over 10 million, and the Tibetans, 6 million, and the Mongols, 5 million. But again, Outer Mongolia uh, was uh, was snatched basically under Soviet sponsorship for their great areas. Uh, so those were mainly uh, nomadic uh, uh, peoples, and therefore also harder, much harder to to sort of incorporate, except the Mongols, Manchus, they conquered China. They voluntarily right, became assimilated. So the rest of them were mostly in the um, inner peripheral, uh, peripheries, uh, peripheries in territories adjacent to uh, China's core. And we were in the hills and mountains uh, in southwest China from where actually I am uh, from. Uh, and some uh, near uh, near uh, northeastern regions. There are other Muslim popu populations. They are called Hui. Right? They were uh, descendants of uh, Silk Roads, uh, the Silk Road, and also Mongol Kanjiskan's conquest. That he brought in a lot of uh, mercenaries who are Central Asian soldiers. So they brought in uh, Islam, and those soldiers, officers, married locals and became dominant uh, Islamic population, also in China's uh, western frontiers, some somewhat east of Xinjiang, but west of the rest of uh, China. Um, so the, uh, the impact on ethnic politics with that kind of uh, 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 diversity uh, is that uh, the inner Peripheral groups, uh, they are more incorporated right? because they were just close by, more incorporated culturally. Uh, but the frontier group, the far away groups, are uh, not like America's case of dispersed, geographically dispersed or mingled, intermingled. Uh, now, in China's case, the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, especially, they are ethnically concentrated. They, are, uh, they, they occupy the so called uh, core ethnic regions, meaning where there are major local majorities. Right? So they speak the same language, uh, share the same religion, they are more have more intra-ethnic cohesion. So therefore, they have retained their ascriptive features, ascriptive features, meaning what you are born with. And for them, uh, many physical features, also religion and language. And so therefore, they pose much um, more challenging uh, tasks for China's job of uh, nation nation building yeah right it's all much more complicated than we're i think led to believe by the 
the media uh, for those of us who are mostly relying on that for you know an understanding of what's going it's, on in China. With, yeah, with the market economy, the market economy allows free flow of migration of economy, looking you know impoverished people everywhere looking for opportunities. So a lot of Han people uh, on their own move to Xinjiang and Tibet because there are a lot of state-sponsored construction infrastructure projects. These are more reliable, seasonal. So a lot of them seek those jobs. Um, and also Tibetans and Uyghurs who move to uh, Han cities uh, to sell their specialty products and um, sell their specialty food, like kebabs and that. So for those two groups, especially because of their ascriptive features, they have a much harder time adapting. Uh, so this kind of a migration and intermingling sometimes, uh, you don't know, it hurts, seem to hurt more than uh, help uh, because it makes them realize more the otherness of the Han Chinese. Before they were, you know, in their own regions, but now suddenly they were thrown in, in, in the open. And the, in Xinjiang and the Tibetan too, uh, the Han people who are not familiar with the local culture, right, and bringing their arrogance and ignorance uh, have also created a lot of uh, cultural conflicts, especially when it comes to economic competition. Got it. So uh, all very fascinating. Uh, but as we come towards a close, I, I can't fail to ask a question about China's posture relative to the Ukraine war. I mean, uh, there was this announcement not long before the war that China and Russia had this partnership or friendship or whatever it was exactly without limits. And uh, there's recently been considerable talk about the Chinese possibly supplying the Russians with weapons, although they haven't done that, at least officially so far. So how do you see, you know, China's interests in this uh, in this conflict? And what do you think they're likely to do in the coming months as you know there's talk of a stalemate there's talk of uh you know possibly that signif signaling that we need to move towards negotiations although that's not necessarily something the ukrainians are prepared to do so i'm just curious how you would see the chinese you know relationship to this whole conf conflict yeah it created certainly has created a lot of the uh, paradoxes dilemmas for for China, of course, when we talk about China, it's huge, and uh, because it's authoritarian, and we tend to see it as a monolith. Uh, but if we make a distinction between the leadership and China as a people or China as a country, as a nation, uh, then there are different interests. But of course, in the authoritarian system, very often the interests of the leadership became become the interests of the uh, country, and those leadership's interests can actually be contrary to to the country's interest. This is very unfortunate, especially when you have very strong, strong leadership who emotionally probably uh, identifies and uh, sympathizes with some other strong leadership in a neighboring uh, authoritarian uh, country. Um, but um, even the leadership uh, should re recognize that Russia doesn't have a, a record of uh, being on uh, good terms with uh, with all of its neighbors, China included, and uh, and China uh, likes to complain about unequal treaties imposed by Western countries, and really neglecting to mention that Russia had also imposed their share of unequal treaties on China. If we count China's territory now, you can say uh, uh, 
a third of China's current territory, the size, had been lost to Russia because of unequal treaties. So they talk about Hong Kong, getting back Hong Kong and, uh, and Taiwan. And, uh, and there are a lot of Chinese citizens, educated ones, who say, how come you don't say getting back those territories from Siberia, from Russia? And, um, and of course, nobody mentions Yuri Outer Mongolia, but Outer Mongolia was also uh, snatched away very much like how Russia did in uh, Crimea uh, by a so-called so engineered uh, referendum. So again, there are different inter separate interests between the country and the, and the leadership uh, and the leadership's interest hmm. has been, of course, in a sort of a comrade uh, coalition uh, with a fellow anti-Western right, leadership as some kind of a combined counterweight to Western countries. And this would be part of both countries uh, making dream of national rejuvenation, making Russia great again, making China great again, right, combined strengths. Um, but the Chinese leadership, as I think, was itself kept in the dark at first about Russia's move. It was taken by surprise and put into very awkward situations because it's not in China's interest to, to see this you know, frontal attack on the concept of sovereignty, which China always uses in its claim over Taiwan. But when you see that your 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 comrade, right, this uh, partner, then attacked uh, the concept of sovereignty so blatantly, so it has put China in a very uh, work awkward uh, place and very hard in terms of principle to defend uh, to defend Russia. So it had to rely on. Uh, some un anti-Western rhetoric uh, that this invasion was uh, provoked by Western move to encircle Russia, which China feels uh, sympathy for because China also feels itself has been encircled by by America and America's allies. So in that sense, um, I think um, the leadership uh, feels you know uh, this. Uh, supportive uh, impulse for 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 Russia um, but other than Russia as a counterweight to the West to the US uh, if it's weakened um, leadership doesn't see it as in China's interest uh, other than that I don't see you know how the Ukraine war actually serves uh, China's interest uh, because uh, rejuvenated Russia and aggressive Russia, uh, it's actually not in China's interest. I think uh, this uh, think tank guru, what's his name? It's very popular in China. Um, Putin's um, top uh, think tank uh, uh, person. Um, and his views are actually very startling. He wanted to take back. He has, uh, they have irredentist claims, not over, not only over former Soviet republics, but also over uh, Chinese territories like Manchuria, bordering Siberia, like Xinjiang itself. Uh, and China had had several wars actually during the Cold War with Russia over you know, these Chinese-Soviet borders. Uh, so it's very interesting that Chinese leadership, right, in their eagerness, eagerness to, to balance against the West and has forgotten about uh, this, you know, historically the little the kind of role that Russia has uh, 
uh, played in snatching away Chinese territories. So again, other than the Ukraine war has been a distraction for the West, for the U.S., so that has taken its uh, a lot of strategic attention and capabilities to focus on Europe away from Asia that benefited China. And also China has increased trade with Russia. Right? But other than that, I don't see I don't see much uh, actually uh, benefit uh, for for China with this uh, war or increased uh, relationship with uh, with Russia. Right. Well, we're basically out of time, but uh, those are very useful, I think, considerations for us to take into account as we think about the future of the American-Chinese relationship and, of course, the future of the Ukraine war. But in any case, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Sun for sharing her insights about ethnic politics in contemporary China and on the Chinese posture towards the Ukraine war. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Nena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torby saying thanks for joining us. We look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. 